Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hey, what's up? Great to see you, man. Welcome back. And, (laughs) of course, Mr. Peter Crable. Hey, Mr. Crable. Howdy. Too bad we're not doing this in person. I know. This was going to be the episode where we reunited after... Over a year. It's probably been 14 months. Probably, yeah. It's probably like February. It's been a while. I missed, I, I, the, I missed the subs and the pizza in the kitchen and then coming down to the Dodd man cave to uh, record. Good yeah. times. We'll, we'll get back to it. We will. We will. All right. Well, it's great to see you, fellas. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We're glad you're with us. As always, you can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter and check out the website, edsnotdead.com. We have a fabulous show tonight. We are going to interview Robert Pondicio, who's a senior fellow at the Fordham Institute, and we are going to talk to him about his recent piece in Mr. Crable's favorite conservative rag, <laughs> Education <laughs> Education. I that. <laughs> well, I, we always uh, Education Next pieces always show up in the show notes. They do. They do. Uh, and they're, and they're good. for good fodder. They're fun to talk about. They are. Um, yeah, we're going to talk to Mr. Pondicio about the science of reading and uh legislating uh good teaching in, by law yeah legislating good teaching and pre-k reading instruction by law which has been tried a bunch over the years so we'll get his take on whether it's worth it um and uh we had an, an exciting announcement tonight we are going to be a press partner isn't right. that true mr siddons that's right we're we're a media partner with the World Innovation Summit for Education. It's based in Qatar, uh, also known as WISE. Uh, the Qatar Foundation uh, linked up with us and they had a, a, an event uh, just a few days ago that we are the media partner on. So we're gonna get some guests on that were part of that summit from their recent conference. And uh, we're hopefully gonna continue with uh, partnering with them in the coming weeks and months with other events that they're doing. I, I like WISE Education's uh, global interest in education innovation. Yes. Um, and, we're, and, me. and we're going to, and we're going to be um, delving into their work on learning ecosystems, right? Yes. I'm, yep. incre- I'm incredibly tempted to put Mr. Crable on the spot right now and ask him <laughs> what a learning ecosystem is, but I, I'll refrain. <laughs> <laughs> basically what, what I've, what I've garnered from my research is it's all, it's, it's basically just trying to rethink how uh, education is the center of, of, of our communities and our cities and, and the ways in which our, we're improving our societies. All right. Well, well which said. What I was going to say. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Mr. 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 Sins, that was the fakest laugh ever. What do you mean? Ha-ha. Ha-ha. Ha-ha, you win. Well, thank you to the Wise, uh, to Wise Education. We are excited to be their, their press partner. And um, we, you'll, be, you'll be sending out some... Yeah, I think you already have sent out some some missives on Twitter about our our partnership, haven't you? Yes, there have been a, a few. All right, yeah. um, and then uh, any last updates on the most awesome pod spinoff of of, for, of of all time, the pandemic pass. <laughs> Uh, so the last interview was with uh, Zaretta Hammond. If you were not, if you didn't get a chance to listen, oh, I, I listened. And your and your special co-host, uh, my special co-host Serenity Moore, my very yeah. good friend Serenity Moore, and uh, she posted it on her Facebook profile. So it gained a lot of traction there as well because she has probably double the amount of followers that we have, maybe or that I have on Facebook. I'm sure. Um, 
And there was a lot of good feedback about the interview and about the, uh, basically the, some of the content about how do we flip the deficit mindset of, of what our students and our children have experienced this past year. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of folks that are, are wringing their hands about learning loss and all those other things. And they're forgetting the fact that Robbie, I think you said it well, you know, early on in the pandemic that kids are always learning. And, you know, although this is a setback in some ways, we are, we are going to come out of this in a, in a, a much stronger way and, and a much more flexible way for kids. And it was a great conversation revolving around that. She's always I, so in, inflappable. You know yeah, what I mean? She oh, is. Global pandemic. We got this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Other huge problems. We can handle it. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Good job, Mr. Siddons. Uh, I think Mr. Crable's incredibly bitter that you got a significant amount of show feedback on Pandemic Pass. I think uh, Ed's not dead bales in comparison (laughs) (laughs) lately in the show feedback. It's not a contest, Robbie. (laughs) It It always is. You you had a great run. We'll have to see if you if there's a if there's a new iteration of Pandemic Pass. What'll what'll be the next uh, its next life? We'll have to see. Right. We'll have to see. Yep. We'll Casey see. and I are actually talking about a spinoff podcast. Without me, of course. Yeah, without you. It's called <laughs> Shocker. It's called The 80s is Remembered by Us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. Since my, since my 80s segment went over so well. We're going to watch reruns of VH1, I Love the 80s, and then comment uh, on it uh, yep. as that, if we were there. That would be pretty funny. We'll that's talk a- to luminaries from the 80s and, and get their memories on the 80s. <laughs> Got, if, only we, got, if only we knew anybody. You've got one on the show. I, okay, that's enough insults. All right. As as always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Ed's Not Dead Media, a podcast media company that, get this, curates high-quality audio stories across a variety of genres like Pandemic Pass. Um, all right, fellas, let's jump into our first piece this week. It's an article that I cannot find that I sent to you. Where is it? Is it in, is it in the is it in the show notes? It's always in the show notes. I have my. I, it's in the chat. It's in, it's, it's in the chat. In the chat. Um, I sent, and I was very impressed. Mr. Crable was. Um, sometimes you all are not that high on my um, my offerings. Uh, not true. But, we but, but, discuss your offerings. But, but Mr. Crable liked this one. So social justice is now the fourth purpose of public schools and all four are in conflict by Samantha Hedges in Discourse. Just came out on April 21st, my wife's birthday. So uh, Ms. Hedges puts forth that... Um, one of the one of the main longtime troubling things about American public education is what they often refer to in the research as goal ambiguity. What is the purpose of American public education? Um, because it's such a diverse, multi-stakeholder kind of enterprise, and uh, a local issue, a state issue, a national issue, um, the way schools are set up and and policy and practice um, can really vary and there's there's <clears throat> often no agreement about about what the purpose of schooling is um, so she lays out that there historically have been three okay we're gonna have a little quiz here are you ready mr. Siddons you're up first so the first is uh, social mobility the social mobility pers- purpose. 
Well, describe that if you could, if you would. <laughs> so, about social mobility? Yeah, what's, what's, uh, that, what's that all about? Uh, the way I understood it is, th- is that we're preparing students to be able to um, move between or move through classes and move through classes based on their uh, career choice or their, okay. their college Get rich. Choice. Get rich, right? That's... Um, so that is the, is it, is, it a, is it a private good or a public good? Runs counter to what you, what you espouse. It's a private good. Right. So it's, it's all about the individual and how what education. What you can do, the expense what, of others. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, 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 I've, and I only say that to you, Casey, because you've, I know you feel strongly that education is a public good. Right. Um, so let's move on to social efficiency. Mr. Crable, describe social efficiency. Training workers. Training workers. The, the creating workers in schools. The chamber of commerce, right? Yep. That 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 the private sector and business, a nation at risk. Uh, we've got to create uh, a workforce that is modern, and it's all about economics. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why we teach. <laughs> that's why <laughs> students build workers. That's but a, a public good, but only in the sense of economic, uh, safety, GDP. Yeah. GDP. Yeah. Back in the 1920s during the the teens and the twenties during, you know, maybe in a, in a period of incredible Im- Im- immigration, I read one time that its purpose was to, was to address the needs of the great unwashed, which is, oh, God. I know, isn't that just uh, hideous? That reminds me of the Tayak and Cuban book. Yeah, in fact, I yeah, I think I stole that line mm-hmm. from Tayak and Cuban. Yep. Um, so, uh, so that so that that has been a long time um, supposed goal of public education. And the last, democratic equality. I don't have to take a stab at one of these I, at this one. Who wants to Who wants to summarize democratic equality? Because I know, Mr. Crable, you're interested in this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you create um, informed citizens to participate yeah. in the democratic process. And we've had Johan Niem on the show that could that has told us all about this and explained yeah. kind of the history of the creation of the common school, right? And and does it apply also to equality of outcomes? And um, that that our goal is to is is to is to produce equality of outcomes. Yes, relative equality. Relative equality. Yeah. Um, habit inputs. No. Equal input, equal inputs will produce equal yeah. outputs. Equal inputs should produce relatively equal outputs. Okay, <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Um, and an example of that would be potentially, as far as legislation is concerned, is no child left behind. Right. Um, so we're we're trying to uh, our our purpose is to make sure that that we we get equal outputs in education and that kids. Um, are, are achieving it at equal levels. Um, and then the last social justice, the new this, one, this is, this is the new one and this is the big one. Um, and this is the one that seems to be upsetting the apple cart. And it is based on the other big E word, which is equity, mm-hmm. right? So, um, unequal inputs and, um, putting education in the context of equity and anti-racism 
and addressing uh, inherent systemic structural barriers that have kept um, certain groups of kids and communities from achieving a quality of outcomes. Um, so that is the that is the that is the conceit of this that those four are in conflict, um, and until we decide which one rules the day, um, we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to improve our schools or get to where we need to go as a nation. Did I miss anything in Ms. Hedges' piece? No. no. So we're, so the so the question is. Where are you, where are you, well, let's, let's start with this. Which is your, which is, which is, as an educator, which one do you espouse of the four? Uh, you're stealing my question. I asked you that last night. You I know. And totally I totally hedged on it. I, <laughs> I didn't. I just did a, a creative combination. My, my initial, so my, my, I think my initial, the one that I was drawn to was democratic equality. That was like, the one that jumped out at me first, you know, and I, when I asked you the question last night, I was like, you know, gun to your head, pick one. It can only be one. That was kind of what I was going for. Um, But, you know, democratic equality is an ideal and an idea, but that is comes up with the reality of the real world, pretty harshly and pretty starkly where in reality, equal inputs are, are don't produce equal outcomes because, equal inputs don't take into account any of the other myriad of factors that might impact student lives, that might impact student achievement, um, where they live, their environment, who they're surrounded by. I mean, any, there's a billion factors. So I think the thing that I liked most about this article was how it labeled the three and now four purposes of public education, because I'm sure you guys get this all the time. Parents, people, I'm thinking about moving is this school good? Is that school good? And I'm always like, well, what, I mean, what do you want out of school? It depends. And I think for me, I'm like, oh, this is without me knowing it, this is really what I was asking them. What's most important to you? Are you all about social mobility? Well, that, then your school is going to be one thing. You're going to want the richest school with the richest people. It's going to get you connections to the other rich people that is going to a job. Right. You know, and then, you know, on kind of on down the line. So, um, I don't know. I, I, but then as I thought a little bit more and then I'll let you go, Casey, cause I'm going to do the, the dot hedge. You know, I was like, well, if you did any, cause I was like, well, is conflict bad is the inherent conflict amongst these bad. And initially I was sort of like, yeah, we, you'll never do anything well if you, if you're only like 25% in any one of these. But, you know, I think if you were to take any of these to the extreme, I'm not sure that you would like the outcomes of school either. If schools were strictly about focus on training workers, then we're, you know, then we're, we're stifling innovation. If we're only looking at democratic equality, then everybody gets a dollar in regardless of their circumstances. So I think, you know, in, in retrospect, it is, I, I think the argument that um, they're in conflict and that's a bad thing is not necessarily the case. They're in conflict and that's what makes us the United States. Yeah, essentially. I mean, because are we ever going to get our populace to agree on what the purpose of education is for their child? Never. Never. So in a way, I mean, the, 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 I, I think it's really interesting historically to kind of to, to describe these purposes and how they're different and how they may conflict. But um, I'm not sure the idea of, 
at the end, which is kind of, which is a bit half-hearted that we're going to somehow we're going to somehow land on just one. Mr. Sids, what's your take? I I I'm very much in the camp of the democratic equality to, as a social studies teacher because and like I think back to teaching um the purposes of government to 11-year-olds, 6th graders and you go into what's the purpose of government and we're talking about what what should the government like at, at its very core what should we our governments be providing for and it's to provide for the common good and some of the things that 11 year olds will come up with and agree with is taking care of its citizens. Are we providing healthcare? Are we um, supporting the, the, the most destitute around us? Are we, um, are we building in foundations in our society to really the, the, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of theory and 11 year olds by and large, you know, they come up with these things. They they don't. I, I'm not feeding it to them when I'm teaching it. Then they're coming up with them. So they, so I, I bring it up because, in that sense, um, that democratic equality piece. I, I always saw it at the time. I didn't see it, but now I do in hindsight. Which is, uh, and maybe I should have been teaching more from the social justice aspect. But uh, I feel like that the if we're molding kids or if we're molding students to be uh, critical thinkers. And, and, and effective citizens in our society, then hopefully, uh, my, I guess in my head, th- they would be more apt to be more than just a, you know, not that a blue collar job is bad, but more than just a, uh, a, an assembly line worker, and that they would be able to compete for higher social positions, because, you know, ideally, they, they'd be able to reach higher levels, you know, go to college, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure. I, I guess I'm not sure how to tie that up for the final <laughs> comment. But is it is it isn't that isn't the notion of democratic equality a, a lie? I mean I, well I, it, 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 it hasn't it hasn't I mean <laughs> that's it, a good the, point. Like in until, the, one of the until nineteen fifty five it didn't even exist for yeah, African American kids. And I, I was it's I thank you for mentioning that because one of the things that we that uh you teach in in or that I taught was uh governments promote the rule of law. We talk about the rule of law. And I left to be a teacher coach from the classroom uh, right when the Trump was taking office, right? So I, I, I always thought about how do you teach promoting the rule of law to sixth graders in an era of, of, our, of an administration that really, but for, from all even neutral accounts, did not have respect for the rule of law? How do you teach that to kids when you know, there's someone in the highest office of the land that is treating uh, people of color and immigrants coming to this country, refugees, in a way that they did. And, and that, I think that in that sense, there are many ways to leverage that kind of teaching into a way that's like, well, we are not inherently equal in this country. And we can, you can see it on the news every day. And as I read through this a little bit more, and then I, I read the paragraph about democratic equality, you know, to the end of the paragraph, um, it talks about implementing a classical curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> so I think in, in, so I think as I was thinking about it was much more like civics minded, you know, to like understand the actual elements of government and the, like, you know, the three branches and how, oh, I see. how, I had how that works. Grade, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to um, like a quote-unquote American culture, 
which I think maybe this is actually talking a little mm. bit. Oh, it is. I mean, it was, yeah, uh, I, 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 I think, well, I, no, I think civics evolved as a, as, you know, just, it was a part of the evolution of, of this concept of democratic equality as far as a purpose, purpose of education. But I think there's an interesting statement in that says it was really to produce, the initial idea was to produce citizens. Right. And learning was actually something that evolved later. Schools, schools purpose was to socialize kids in our democratic ideals. Right. Not, not really to learn. Yeah. Um, Assimilate. Yeah, it's, uh, absolutely. Um, so I, I just, I want your help on this one concept though, because I've been struggling with it. Um, and then we'll tie it up is here comes the social justice warriors. The social justice approach calls for an unequal distribution, which that annoys me that it's phrased as an unequal distribution. As if something's um, being taken away from someone else. Correct. Uh, of resources to achieve equal outcomes, regardless of how those outcomes are defined. In contrast, democratic equality calls for equal treatment of students in the process of schooling, which is relative to equal treatment under the law, such as by the use of a uniform school curriculum. I, 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 I feel like that paints with a very broad brush. How... how um, how equal are the inputs in schooling right now? I mean, equity already exists. It has for a long time. Um, equity exists in the law. For example, public, public law 94-142, which was for students with disabilities, 1972, that, was, that, that called for unequal distribution of resources, right? Kids that had special needs needed um, different services. Mm-hmm. And so equity has been around and I, 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 I don't see those two things in conflict. That's why I hedged last night, Peter. Mm. Yeah. Now there's an argument to, there's an argument to be had about how well equity works, how well it has worked on the ground. Correct. On the ground. But I, as a concept, it's been in I mean, place for a and long I think time. there's a discussion to be had. I think if I'm reading in between the lines here, the, the complaint would be, what are the outcome? Okay, cool. Let's give unequal money. Right. What? How are we know? How do we know whether it works or not? You yep. know what I mean. But yes, yep. the concept of unequal inputs. Well, it's not entirely true because people of means already have way more, aside from just monetary numbers in their wallet, you know, <laughs> their, their bank, bank accounts. Yeah, they got there's. <laughs> There's yeah. 75,000 other advantages that yeah. you have yeah. Yeah. being a person that means as a person that doesn't well, and, they, and they make an assumption. The, the inputs are already unequal for them. Yeah, it's completely. Correct. And they make an assertion that, for example, San Diego voted to overhaul its grading system be, only because non-white students were achieving at lower levels than, than white students. But if you look at, you know, they didn't, did they look at the data as to say, like, why are some students performing differently than others? Uh, it, it paints, a, as you're saying, it paints a broad brush about what exactly is being changed in a school system to reflect uh, a more equitable outcomes for kids. Yep. Um, critics of the social justice approach point out that social justice does not achieve an objective of public schools to raise academic achievement as measured by test scores. But this assertion is difficult to evaluate until there's a consensus about which purpose of public schools should be the primary one. Yeah, I mean, we've had a million arguments, and Crable, you summarized it very nicely at the at the beginning of the of our discussion. 
is, you know, your, your, your take on what you want your kids to get from school could be very different than mine. Right. Um, so I thought it was a fascinating piece. Um, check it out. It is, uh, social justice is now the fourth purpose of public schools and all four are in conflict by Sarah Hedges, April 21st in discourse. You're going to, you're going to push this out. Yes. Okay. If, if I may also say like, if, 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 obviously this is, is bashing on social justice a little bit, but the, if school's purpose is moving into more social justice, wouldn't you be able to hit the three initial purposes in a more positive way or in a way that lifts people up? Right. Instead of throwing people into poverty and not doing anything about it. Yeah. Allowing people to choose jobs based because they have access to healthcare, giving people, uh, getting people to understand that our, our democracy is not really a democracy and is not really equal. It's probably a good way to, 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 to be teaching about our country. Absolutely. And let's, I mean, we've spent a hundred years teaching a lie about democratic equality. I'm <laughs> right. sorry, maybe it's time to start to teach about the inequality that the country was founded on. Right. Um, and, and, and then start to show Str- kids and strive for equality. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, all right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling relieved that neither of you asked me now that I'm putting myself on the spot <laughs> where I stood on this. I'm, I'm all in. Where on do so- you stand on? I'm all in on social justice. <laughs> we know that. All right. All right, uh, folks, don't go away. When we come back, we are excited to welcome Fordham fellow, Robert Pondicio onto Ed's Not Dead. We are going to talk about K three reading, right, Mr. Oh, right, Mr. Sentence. So exciting! You guys should be interviewing me on this. <laughs> That's why I'm I'm glad to bring him on because I knew that you 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 put him to the put it, coals to the fire or whatever that analogy is. All right, rake <laughs> coals. To put the his feet to the fire and <laughs> rake him over the coal. And All there's right. no iron team. There was a cra- there was a crable child in there. <laughs> totally distracted us. There are there. saying goodnight all right uh folks don't go away we are ed's not dead we'll be right back welcome back to ed's not dead we are still here hey fellas howdy all right, we are in, we are incredibly excited to have Robert Pondicio, who is a senior fellow at the Fordham Institute, on the show. He writes um, extensively about education, and uh, as we've talked before the show, he was a, a teacher, and so he he has, as I like to say, uh, been in the vineyard and picked the grapes. So he knows what he's talking <laughs> about. He's not just one of those policy people, right, Robert? Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. Um, thanks for having me, gentlemen. And yeah, like I was saying before, I, I don't like to be the guy who waves the bloody shirt, but there, there are a lot of people in the policy world who um, are just, shall we say, incurious. Yeah. About <laughs> that's, that's right. All right. So um, you had a piece that... Um, Really uh, got us thinking, can teaching be improved by law? It was in Education Next. Um, I think it came out in, was it, was it this month? Was it April or March? It was uh, oh, last week, yeah. It was last week, okay. Um, and uh, it's really focused on the science of reading. Admittedly, in the piece, you talk about your, you know, being somewhat scared about the impact of policy on what happens in the classroom um, in just general terms. but. Um, 
the science of reading is something that as far as policy is concerned or, or law, you have some hope. Um, before we dive into that, for our listeners, can you just um, summarize science of reading? What are we talking about? Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it defies easy summarization. Um, and I should talk maybe a little bit about, you know, what led me into this work, because I was, you know, a, a fifth grade teacher at a struggling South Bronx elementary school for several years, about, you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, it was a struggle for, for the kids to read. So I first became interested in, in the science of reading, although we didn't call it then. I mean, this is kind of a new phrase that's gained some traction mostly due to the work of, of, of Emily Hanford of American Public Media, who has uh, written a lot and broadcasts a lot about the so-called science of reading. So it's not a, it's not a phrase that, that we have been using until recently, um, but my kind of interest in, in scientifically-based reading um, pedagogy, if you like, was a direct result of, of my, my teaching in the South Bronx. So um, just to paint the picture for you a little bit, um, I, I taught a PS 277, which if you know New York City, and why, well, why would you? District 7 <laughs> um, is the lowest scoring school district in New York City. My school was the lowest scoring school in District 7. Um, so it was, by, you know, by definition, the, 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 the lowest of the low in terms of its reading scores, fewer than, than one out of five kids reading at or above grade level. And um, I, I fell in love, I guess you would say. I developed my kind of an intellectual crush on the work of E.D. Hirsch Jr. Of, of oh, jeez. I knew he was, was going to be an E.D. Hirsch guy. Yeah, yeah there you go. Well, I mean, okay. well, but I mean, it's because my eyes are open, frankly. In other words... Um, you know, um, my kid I, in in five years teaching fifth grade in the school, I literally had never had a kid who could not quote read, or to use a word I didn't use at the time, decode. They could all decode. They struggled for comprehension, and and Hirsch was the one guy whose work described exactly what I saw in my South Bronx classroom. You know, kids who who you know the the, the old phenomenon you've heard a thousand times of I read it but I didn't get it. Well, why didn't you get it? They didn't get it because they didn't have the background knowledge sufficient to help them, you know, um, make the intuitive leaps that mature readers make. So, you know, that was kind of my first um, journey down this road. I mean, I left my classroom determined, uh, almost literally, you know, found my way to Charlottesville, Virginia to knock on Hirsch's door to say, hey, you know, let me, let me, you know, help you because you're the guy who's kind of figured it out. Because long story short was this was not taken seriously um, in New York City at the time and maybe not still. Um, so I took, you know, every kid I've ever taught has been a low income kid of color. And as far as I was concerned, then and now this was what they needed. So, you know, the, the science of reading covers a lot of ground. That's, that's the piece that I've specialized in over the years is that background knowledge piece that 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 knowledge rich curriculum piece. I alluded to Emily Hanford, the, the, the broadcasting and writing that she's done more recently tends to focus on the early childhood ed part of it, uh, the decoding, the phonological awareness, the fluency, etc. Uh, and, she, and she did a remarkable piece a few years ago called Hard Words. And, and it, it, it really kind of laid out the case that, look, you know, we know how to teach kids how to read and we don't, um, by and large. And it's because there, you know, there are other more fashionable ideas about how to teach reading. Um, but this so-called science of reading has really been quite well known 
um, to a number of researchers for decades. And, and uh, she has probably done as much as anybody to kind of get schools and districts and states to sit up and take notice and say, hey, why, why aren't we doing that? You know, the, 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 uh, what I call the uh, when Harry met Sally theory of reading. You know, you look at what works and say, I'll have what they're having. Right. Um, so, 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 you know, hopefully this is gaining a little bit of traction. But to bring the story, you know, up, up to date, it's now getting to the point where you've got, you know, 20 odd states that are considering some form of legislation to, to basically mandate that schools, you know, do, do some form of this in, in, in their states. And that's where this gets complicated. What it, and so uh, and now that you mentioned the 20 states that are considering these measures, what do you, how do you perceive this is going to impact public school systems in the, in the near term? Yeah, I mean, unknown and unknowable. And I mean, um, you know, you, you pointed out that I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of guardedly optimistic about this because, you know, um, since we're all educators here, there's no reason not to be, you know, frank about this. The, the track record of policy um, driving classroom instruction is not good. Uh, you will recall that it was the law of the land that every kid would read on grade level by 2014 um, under No Child Left Behind. Did we not make that? that, that no, it, ha- no it, ha- it happened, I thought. It happened oh, in my school. Okay. <laughs> I remember um, seeing t-shirts at one point. <laughs> a quality of outcomes. Yeah, we, we did it. Um, no, you know, and, and I don't, I don't want to be cavalier about this because I'm not one of these people who says that policy makers should just leave teachers the heck alone right because if because if, let's be brutally frank if, if we knew how to do this we'd be doing it um, and, in, and in any kind of you know public accountability system or, or any any publicly financed system there's just going to be some kind of accountability it's just naive to think there can't or won't or shouldn't be so you know if your wish is we'll just get the policymakers out of it well that's not going to happen what comes next so what comes next is things like um, these, these various laws, and the one I wrote about a few weeks ago was in North Carolina, um, but more commonly, you know, Florida going back 20 years ago, Ohio has this, a lot of states have these so-called third grade reading guarantees, um, you know, that, that uh, if a kid isn't reading on grade level, they get retained, they get, you know, all, the, all the, these interventions or whatnot, it differs from state to state. Um, but there has been a... Which, which, which you'll, you'll agree was a total disaster in Florida. Well, it depends. I think it worked out okay in Florida, but and and there's good reason to think it's working out okay in Mississippi if you look at at, at NAEP scores. But it's it's the, the the larger point is it's not simply this kind of you know wave a magic wand and by by right. magic fiat um, you know we have now made it the law that kids will read you know by uh, by third grade. I mean, I make this point all the time in in the policy to the policy world that if you think about the kind of in, the internal logic of of accountability measures it makes an assumption, which is that schools and teachers know what to do and they merely need to be held accountable. And I always say, where did you get that idea from? Um, Because, you know, and I'm sure you've had experiences in your various schools throughout your careers where you encounter people who are, as I like to say, trying hard and failing. And they're not trying hard um, despite their training. Often they're trying hard and failing because of their training. So in other words, you know, you, you can't you know, neither carrots nor sticks is sufficient here. I mean, you know, there, there is, to be brutally frank, a, um, a gap in competence often um, in struggling schools that you can't just, you know, say by law, you're now going to do your job well. If they knew how to do their job well, they'd be doing it. Right. So that's, so that's my next question. That's, that, was a, that was a great segue. So, um, and you talk a little bit about this in the piece, um, but having, having spent so much time teaching and, and, um, and learning about reading, in your view, how does 
codifying the science of reading into law and policy ensure that other critical elements of, of early childhood education, which I think you're really talking about the learning to read versus the reading to learn piece. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. how, how, how do we ensure that the PD, the leadership development, certainly principals leadership play a role in this in schools and the fidelity of implementation, which is what you're talking about, which is so critical. You know, that famous study that Rand did where, 75% of, of, of initiatives are, are co-opted and not implemented with fidelity. How do we get those things under, in any kind of law and policy? Yeah, well, this is to the degree to which I'm guardly optimistic about so-called science of reading laws, to coin a phrase. It's, it's because of exactly what you just described. In other words, if a state, you know, and, it's, and the jury's out in terms of what's, what, what a state can do at that kind of 35,000-foot level to drive good practice. I mean, remind me, we'll talk about the Louisiana model, which I like. But you can make a case, mind you, a theoretical case. I can't point to actual data in the real world for this. But you can make a theoretical case if, say, North Carolina says, or another state says, look, in this state, this is how we teach reading, okay? Uh, we are going to do, you know, quote, phonics. Um, we're going to... Um, you know, adopt a curriculum, adopt a program, adopt a, a theory of how kids le- learn how to read. Um, well, then you can kick in all those or you, you can incentivize all those other measures. In other words, there's one fewer moving part. So, and, and if you think about the entire ecosystem of how teachers get trained, you know, one, one kind of interesting data point that we never think about is the vast majority of teachers who teach in a given state um, go to ed school in that state. You know, right. I, I mean, on average, 80, 90 percent. So that gives you a certain amount of leverage as a policymaker to say, look, if you want to certify teachers in the state, you got to teach them how to do this, meaning the right. science of reading, meaning, meaning whatever the curriculum is. So you can kind of, uh, you can see a way, you know, if you squint, um, to create kind of a, you know, an intellectual ecosystem where, where, this is how you teach reading. We're going to train you how to teach reading. We're going to build your professional development around this, where it all vertically aligns, as opposed to you know what I got when I was a new teacher, which is oh well, Mr. Pondicio, you're the best person to know what every child needs. I'm like, are you out of your damn minds? I just just got here. I'm the best person to know anything here. You know, we we do too much of that in education, where we just kind of you know throw new teachers into the deep end mm-hmm. of the pool and figure they're going to figure it out for themselves, which is right. just kind of. Yeah, and and I I always joke with the guys. There's if you want to get a conservative excited, just say phonics. Um, that that's just a that's <laughs> there's a little there's a little, there's a little bit forty odd phonemes, and they are what they are. And you can teach them. That that's the piece that worries me though, because the as you've described so well. You know, the context of teaching is such a complex, the environment that teachers work within. And then, and then I, you know, I'm curious about how issues of equity, um, you know, um, the, the kind of the, the need to vary inputs depending on the school that you're in, um, how those factors are considered because, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes some of these programmatic approaches can be one size fits all as it relates to reading. Um, and I, and I'm not, I mean, I have my own personal issues with really overly prescriptive reading programs. Um, no child left behind was full of those. Let's intervene with kids and let's just phonics them to death. Didn't matter the grade level they were in. 
Um, so I, I'm, I'm just, I, I have questions about the quality of programs, how states make those decisions, how policy is attached to that, because not all programs are created equal when it comes to good, good reading instruction. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. And, and I mean, my one pushback on your pushback is to say in terms of equity, you know, I've made myself very unpopular in this, in this work by saying, to my mind, literacy is equity. You know, in other words, um, and, I, and I'm gonna, that's the hill I'm going to die on. You know, okay. so, you know and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be, and I, I think I said this in the piece, you know, I don't have very much of a desire at all to impose. I have very strong feelings about, you know, good, better, and best in terms right. of curriculum, but I'm not willing to impose those on people. I'll try to persuade you, but maybe the one exception would be early childhood literacy, um, and, and I'm not going to say the P word and set you off. Coding. <laughs> How about that? Um, because, you know, there are only so many letters and only so many phonemes and they can be learned and practiced and mastered. So for Pete's sake, can we please at least do that? Oh, no, I, I, I agree. We just have to, at some point, maybe in our next time you come on the show, we've got to talk comprehension because that is the, that, well, that's, that, 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 yeah, I mean right. that's that's that I'm a Hirsch guy, is because precisely because of comprehension because I watched my fifth graders struggle for years, right? Uh, with comprehension, and again, Hirsch was the one guy who's who's you know who explained this. And whenever I would bring this up in my grad school classes and my PD, I would invariably hear some version of, "Oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody <laughs> takes that seriously." Like, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what he's about at all. He's about reading comprehension. He's about background knowledge. He's about schema, etc. So, I mean. Um, I mean, again, he's still alive. Something and sharp as a tack. I know. I know. We, we we almost had him on the show, didn't I we? I know. I was emailing with his his we, secretary. We couldn't, yeah. we couldn't get a date together. Yeah, okay. we couldn't get a date. Yeah. My, I have a question. So, like, uh, there's a dozen of those states in your article that you're talking about that are, you know, considering these laws. Oh, here we go. No, uh, a dozen <laughs> of that list. It seems that. You know, if you look at the rankings of however they do the rankings across the United States, the, the a dozen or so of those states are, are pretty low on the rankings of education system. Yeah. What, yeah. what does it tell you about the the particular states that are that are pursuing these laws, and and if it proves to be positive for kids, what does it tell you about about you know, maybe a, a silver lining about about education systems in our country? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm tempted to quote the Bob, me and Bobby McGee, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. You know, if you're Mississippi or Louisiana, who are, you know, two of the current kind of it states in terms of literacy, they've been, you know, at or near the bottom for a very, very long time. So, I right. mean, you know, the good news is, is it does give you the kind of permission structure to, to be a little bit more, not exactly top down, but, but prescriptive sure. um, right. uh, uh, reading instruction. Um, and you, and then there's that ceiling effect, right? If you're starting at the bottom, you can, you know, the, the, the gains you know, look more robust more quickly. Sure. But, um, and I'm more familiar with Louisiana than Mississippi, having spent some time down there. But Louisiana, to me, um, is probably the best model that I can think of in terms of, you know, not being top down, um, but under their previous supervisor, John White. You know, they made some, I think, very good, smart bets, which is to say, well, look, we're a local control state. We're not going to tell you what you have to do. But we're going to sweeten the pot for you. Um, one person down there you know, famously said, we, we make the easy choice, the best choice, the easy choice. So what they did, and uh, stop me if you know all this, uh, I'll bore you with this. They, they, they did a you know, system driven by teachers right. where they had a certain set of criteria. This is what a, you know, a tier one curriculum looks like. This is what a tier two curriculum looks like. This is a tier three. You can't teach that here. 
So they basically, you know, uh, basically did like a, an ed report sort of sort of ranking, and they created in incentive structures uh, with professional development, uh, coaching, etc., to incentivize local districts to adopt these so-called um, you know tier one curricula, and it's, sure. and it and it seems to have worked. Um, you know, again, they're not. It's not like they went from being you know the bottom to number one, but but in terms of you alluded to the RAN uh, work before, in terms of teachers understanding their standards, understanding their right. curriculum, Louisiana teachers look really good. You know, because it's because it is they're they're, they're you know, unless they sing from the same hymnal, but you get the idea. They right. they the incentive structures exist for them to pick a good curriculum, build their PD around it, teach it well with fidelity. Even up to and including the assessments, um, you know, right. they they were talking about um, you know making some of the, the you know like if you think about, think about a math test, there's no mystery as to what's on a you know fifth on grade math, math test. test, right? In a reading test, it's a random walk in the woods. But if you right. knew the content, then you have an right. incentive to teach. So, and and you know, every teacher is a teacher of reading. Every teacher is a teacher of reading. That is such a lie. It is. It's true. <laughs> it's a, I I disagree with that, Robbie. <laughs> I disagree with 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 Mr. Dodd because I you know I, you know, I, I think every teacher is a teacher of reading, but not for the reasons that we say. Right. In other words, if if you view reading comprehension, you know, keep invoking Hirsch here, as as driven by your background knowledge, well, every teacher contributes to that store of background knowledge, even you know the gym teacher, mm -hmm. for, for example. Um, so if you don't know if that reading passage on the test is going to be about you know uh, the 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 Vikings. Um, you know the 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 American West stickball, etc. There's no such thing as wasted information. It's all mm -hmm. it's all the mill, and it all it all builds world and and word knowledge. All right, let me rephrase. Not every teacher teaches kids how to read. Um, <laughs> the the nuts and bolts of reading. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, but it's, they, all they, sure. it's, it's all it's all grist for the mill. So I guess the interesting thing to me here is. Um, that I, that I'm taking away from from what you're saying, Robert, is you know as, as much as I um, would like to argue on certain fronts on this, and 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 then I and then I will argue against myself, which I'm meant to do as well. Yeah, I just I'm a, I'm an arguer. Uh, I, I saw a guy at Hopkins. I can't remember his name when I was getting my doctorate a few years ago. He was really good and. Um, he he did a he did a lot of work on on the implementation of of research based practices in schools, and it had to be Bob Slavin who just passed away. The other it day. wasn't Slavin. It wasn't Slavin. I know uh, it wasn't Slavin. It was he was a guest lecturer and um, Slavin man. He was a giant. Um, nope. Rest in peace. Um, but basically, what he said, and teachers don't like to hear this, is. Um, not a lot of data out there, not a lot of research that supports the idea that a lot of teacher autonomy in the classroom is the way to go. Um, really, you think I'm going to disagree with? No, I know you're going to. I'm arguing against myself, so you're going to agree with me, right? So, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but so I guess that raises the question, and it's an important question for teachers, for educators. What is the sweet spot of autonomy for teachers in classrooms when it comes to things like reading? And I don't know if we've ever figured that out. Um, and it's an important it's an important question. I'd be curious uh, as we finish up what you think of that. This is, this is um, a big, fat, grapefruit-sized fastball over the heart of the plate. Um, <laughs> this is this is a setup, right? Like you know that this yeah. winds me up because um, it really does. Um, I mean, look, I've, you know, I've already betrayed my affection for Hirsch, but I mean, that, they, my, that, that made me kind of a curriculum fetishist. 
And um, maybe the, the thing that I wrote some years ago that, that um, has resonated the most, like it, it, it shows up on syllabi and whatnot year after year in various places for reasons good or for real, was a piece I wrote, um, and I think it had the title, like How We Make Teaching Too Hard for Mere Mortals. And it was about this idea, like think about this, like the, 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 the demands we put on teacher time. Um, because you know, I, I made a joke before, but it, it, it was actually true that staff developer who told me that I was the best person to know what every kid in the class needed. In other words, I was the person who was going to figure out what each kid was interested in, find reading materials for them, develop a curriculum tailored to their this interest. With with what time? Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 there was another RAND study some years ago that showed that literally every, or not all, literally, almost every, like 98, 99% of teachers in America cite materials that they either created or found curated absolutely at driving the majority of of their of their of their teaching time now look let, you know maybe that stuff is fantastic okay maybe there are 3.7 million mozarts out there who are who are all creating you know different bespoke uh, lesson plans on how to add and subtract unlike fractions that or maybe you're, or maybe you're just spending a week on halloween and it's a waste of time. Apple week. About <laughs> this, okay? Um, and, and actually, I just wrote a book a few years ago about Success Academy in New York City, a, a high-achieving charter school network, and I think they've kind of got this right. Um, the time that you're spending on Google, on Pinterest, on teachers pay teachers looking for material or creating it with stuff you get at the dollar store right. is time that you are not spending studying student work, building relationships with kids yep. and family, giving feedback. Uh, you know, I think carefully going over student writing, studying student work, planning to teach the lesson, doing your so-called intellectual preparation, heck, building your own store of knowledge, you know, so you can be a more effective instructor. Right. I, I, I don't want to be dismissive and say anybody can write a lesson plan, but come on, you know, nobody else can do that other stuff. Um, so, I mean, if, if, if there's any hill I really am willing to die, it's that one, that, that I'd like to see the, the culture of education change. Um, so that we really ask teachers to focus on on their maximum lever of uh, or their, their their maximum leverage, which is that that one on one react or, or interaction they can have with students, the feedback, mm -hmm. etc. Um, and, and this is where you know curriculum comes in because you can't just hand them anything. Right. Um, if if you start with a good quality curriculum and you get expert at teaching it, then then you're going to have the bandwidth to to really con contribute that value add and all those other dimensions that you literally are the only person who can do that. Well said, um, Robert Pondicio. So tell, tell our listeners um, what you're doing now, where they can find your latest work. What do you have in the hopper? Uh, thanks. Um, boy, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to getting back into school. So I, I, you know, um, I'm, not, I'm not hard to find. I, I, I post a lot on, on you know, social media, on Facebook and Twitter and whatever I'm writing. So um, you know, my DMs are open, as they say on Twitter. I, I <laughs> as the kids say. <laughs> the kids say, slide into my DMs, whatever that means. <laughs> this is a family show, Rob. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, mo anything that I write is going to show up there, and it's our publicio at, at, at Twitter. So that's kind of you know for good or for ill where where, where stuff shows up. Um, you working really on a book? Is there going to be a book coming? Come on, it's time um, to write I just, another I just book. Wrote a book a little while ago. It's called okay. How the Other Half Learns about Success Academy. Okay. Um, and and now that schools are starting to reopen, I mean, I'm 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 the one freak in the policy world who actually likes being on the road and in schools. Right. Um, and that, that all came to a grinding halt last March. So hopefully this fall. 
Um, I'll be, you know, back on the road and back in schools and, 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 you know, I'm sure stories will emerge as we, as we emerge from the, from the pandemic, but maybe I'll come visit you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, we'll have to get you down to the, to the DMV because we know you spend some time there. Um, uh, well, once again, Robert Pondicio, it's been great to have you on the show, senior fellow at the Fordham Institute. Um, we're going to get you back on the show once things hopefully get back to normal, uh, next year. We'd love to get you back on. Anytime. Enjoy. All right. Thanks, Robert. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm still joined by my co-hosts, Mr. C.H. Siddons and Mr. Peter Crable. Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Ed's Not Dead Media, a podcast media company that curates. I do believe Mr. Pondicio used the word <laughs> curate in one of his answers too. in That's that interview. Yeah. I, was, I was a little appalled. Uh, <laughs> curates high-quality audio stories across a variety of genres. Genres. Genre. Um, Who wrote that copy? Uh, Some Lord, clown. Pains me every time I whoever that whoever that sponsor is. By the way, if you'd like to sponsor Ed's Not Dead, you can contact Casey Siddons. <laughs> um, Robert was a great guest, don't you think, fellas? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Good, good conversation. He was great. He is a he is a he is a good talker. Mr. Yeah, Hunters, yeah, yeah. No, knows his stuff. Um, I vote that he he could be our. Uh, he seems like a friend of the pod. We could get him yeah, back I, on. I think so. Yeah, he could be our David Brooks. Yeah, he could. He could be our. Da- oh, Mr. <laughs> that is genius. David Bro- Brooks and Mark Shields. <laughs> I think you should, t- Casey. When we when you tweet about him on the show, I I think you should say Ed's not dead. David Brooks, <laughs> Robert Pondicia. Do that. I, he'll get a kick out of that, or he'll be totally. Uh, he's like or, I hate him, <laughs> or he won't talk to us ever again. Either way, you know. yeah. uh, only one uh, way uh, to find out. Anyway, thanks for <laughs> thanks to Robert Pondicio for coming on the show. All right, fellas, we are back. We are wrapping things up. Uh, this was the I neglected to share with the, the audience that this this is the draft episode of Ed's Not Dead. <laughs> our cool. our sh- our show Booker scheduled recording on the night of the 2021 NFL draft. Just the draft. God forbid. <laughs> Who, wh- why do we even have to watch the draft? It's, and it's, it's it's conjured up by the NFL to make it seem like it's a big deal. It's not, not a big exactly. Deal. It, it's <laughs> just, exact, just, watch, just read about it the next day. It's brilliant. It is one of the most brilliant pieces of marketing ever. Yeah, it's, and you're it's, sucked it's, right into it. They exactly. they, <laughs> they sell us hope, and I just buy it every time. Don't and, you, Mr. Craves? That's no, I don't. I, I stopped Washington watching draft like 15 years ago. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Casey on this one. I'll always love the draft. The perpetual Washington football fan club. Oh, okay. It's going to be a great year. I think uh, things are looking up. Things dear, are baby. looking up. A dear friend of a dear friend of yours and I were talking about lamenting that you had scheduled recording the pod on the night of the draft and I think he made mention of that you're a Packers fan and that you could name one single player on the Packers. <laughs> Literally <laughs> one. Literally one. Who's about to be traded to the Broncos. The Jim Patterson? <laughs> the Jim Patterson. Who were you talking to? Uh, I, was talking to I was talking to your friend, Mr. Miller. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, can only, I can only list one person on the team. This is true. I have uh, one, to be a fan for conversation's sake. One, one, one T. I just had like a moment of kind of my heart fluttered when you mentioned one T. It's been it's been so long. Should I give him a call? You, not right now. Okay. But we but we 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 could bring that 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 shtick back. You know he's right? not going to answer, right? 
Uh, I know. Uh, and he stopped kind of the group text. He's, is he, he's still alive. He's still writing. Right? He's writing probably more than he did when he was full time. He's sleep. <laughs> he's sleeping in his lazy boy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Drinking his, what's his drink? What's Jim's drink again? Oh, I don't know. He, he has a mixed drink that he likes a lot. Probably a, a Manhattan. We got to get him on the pod at some sometime. We could make, it would be funny. It would. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's that time of the show where we are doing stock up, stock down. Ready, boys? Ready. All right. Uh, so this is how stock up, stock down works. Um, I'm going to read the, <laughs> stop that. Um, I'm going to read the, the, the point to you and you've got to, each, each of you have to give me stock up or stock down on it. Okay. You got it. All right. Um, this might be a rather tepid stock up, stock down list. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might have to throw some, throw some, throw some curveballs. Throw some curveballs. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Go here on, we go. Uh, <laughs> end of year school celebrations. Stock up, stock down. Oh man, Mr. Krabs, you're first. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with stock up. Oh, that's a shocker. Yes, yes. Uh, I think does there's that, gonna. Does that include like graduations and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think there's gonna be some proms, and I think there's gonna be some graduate in-person graduations, and I think uh, if you had asked a month ago, I would have said stock down, but I, I'm, uh, I'm I think it's trending upward at this point. All right. End of year celebration. Stock up, stock down, Mr. Siddons. I'd say stock down. I think I think folks are still too nervous. I, I think there will still be parties and celebrations, but I think folks are still too uh, trepidatious about, about joining in any big celebrations. All right. Stock up, stock down, Mr. Siddons. One of your favorite times of the year, in-person parent conferences next year. Stock up, stock down. I say stock down. I think it's going to be Zoom, Zoom parent conferences. Oh, that's depressing. Yeah, I, I think there will be in-person conferences that will take place maybe during the day for specific people, specific students. Uh, but I, I think most, I think parents as well will will opt to be uh, to do the Zoom conference. All right, Mr. Krabs. I think you're going to notice the pattern here. Stock up. Whoa. Uh, oh, he's, he's, he's glass half full I'm, guy. I'm, I'm very bullish, bearish, whatever the good one is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I never know the difference. I'm not a stock market guy. Why can't they have two different <laughs> animals? Like you know. I, I think it's bullish. Yes. <laughs> sure. Uh, a bull market. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, I think that by next October, November, the uh, not all. I think Zoom will be an option, but most conferences will be in person. All right. Okay. Ready? Well, can uh, I can I put out a hot take on that one? Yeah. Yes. I I, I hate to put uh, cold water on everything. He thinks we're going to be closed. By I think we're going to be closed. I think I think we're gonna, schools are going to be shut down in some capacity in the he fall. Is insane. What okay. are you talking about? Where did that come from? Just telling you. Are you are you are you? Is there a new variant? I don't know about. I, I think between the variants. And the fact that not everybody's getting vaccinated, and oh. the fact that there's just going to be outbreaks, we're we're going to continue the dance. I'm telling you, listen, this is this, this is, is the day. That's a hot take. Listen, I like it. I like listen, it. this I, is I, the day, April 29th, that you heard it here first. That we are gonna. There's going to be a dance. Okay, from Mr. Epidemiologist over there, <laughs> uh, Doctor Sids. Okay, stock up, stock down. Uh, the four-day school in-person school week. Oh, <laughs> Lord. 
We talked about oh, that. Say, in say it one. again. No, no, and, and let me, let me, let me, let me specify the current four day in-person school week, stock up, stock down, stock up. <laughs> I uh, hate, stock I up, hate it. stock up in my mind. Uh, it is a fabulous. Uh, uh, I'm with terrible. You. Yeah, but I, I do not see it sticking around, unfortunately. No. So it's stock. It's future stock down. Yeah, it'll be. I, I, I think that there will be school systems across the country that will perpetuate the thing that they were trying to do before the pandemic, which was to save money. They went to four day weeks. I think there will be a lot more of that from from red states. I could do a little bit more money saving. <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Siddons, stock up, stock down. The importance of summer school. Oh, man. I, I, I think I've said this before. I think this is a major stock up, not only with summer school, but maybe the, um, the shift towards all your schooling. Oh, God. Can you be any more predictable? Why? Because <laughs> if- snow days, four day weeks, <laughs> summer school, year round schooling. Okay, he just he just <laughs> he's he's hiding now. He's Screw you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. Finish. Go ahead. Go ahead. How, what does summer school have to do with year round schooling? Because I think it, it perpetuates the idea that. Uh, learning happens or should be happening in a more consistent basis. So the, the summer slide that happens for students of color and students in poverty um, is, is, is much higher than all than other student groups. So I think the fact that if we, if we bring in the idea that uh, summer school should not just be an optional thing, but rather something that happens for every student, I think it's going to be better for every kid. That was a very, very serious stock uptake. Um, you, were right. trying to, you were trying to break me, but I wasn't. <laughs> was you were that, and, and I, I, I pulled out like the heavy, heavy artillery and it didn't work. Um, Mr. Krabs, uh, this is just for you. Yes. And I completely forgot the stock up, stock down. Uh, <laughs> That I was going to ask, um, uh, since you're Mr. Tech Guy, one to one devices for students across all grade levels next year. That is going to be a big stock up. Okay. Yes, uh, devices are here and here to stay, and are going to. I just, you know, and I don't know nationwide, like how how far down to the lower grades they've gone, but. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time before you hear the stories on the news about the kindergartners with the the Chromebooks or the kindergartners with the laptops or the iPads or whatever. So I think this is probably going to be the next big movement is a, a device for every student in the country. More screen time. Yep. All right. We've got two more. Um, you're going to get one more yourself, and then we're going to end with with both of you going. Mr. Siddons, stock up, stock down virtual standalone virtual academies or schools as a function of school systems next year? I would say a major stock up. Uh, I think a lot of school systems are planning this, these virtual academies across the country because even um, I think obviously most school districts will want their bulk of their students to come back. I think there's, there's a, a big case to be made for students who maybe were homeschooled previously or, or home hospital that would benefit from this students who are immunocompromised who would benefit from this. And then I think there's the other bucket of kids who uh, this zoom teaching has actually been very beneficial for them. It's worked for them. Yeah. 
Not okay. many. I, I don't think not, but but a lot. Okay. Stock up for virtual academies. All right. Lastly. Hold on. Let me let me answer that one. Okay. So, that wasn't yours, but go ahead. <laughs> I want to disagree. So I, I think, you know, compared to zero, yes, stock up. But I think that um, a lot of school districts may theoretically want to be able to do this. But I think it's not plausible for smaller school districts. So I think when you take... I don't think any non-urban school districts or large suburban school districts are going to do it. So I think you take all of them off the map. And then I think, I wonder um, the economics of it. So Mm. schools certainly do have a large influx of money now from the federal government. But I do wonder that if school systems are thinking about doing it once the kind of uh, the rubber hits the road and they're forced to make a decision there and they're like, is this something that we really want to offer? Mm. I think it's going to end up being not that many school systems. Yeah, I think the jury's out on, I think there's a lot of things that we don't know about staffing, how it impacts uh, federal funding for how many students you have from small districts. Is it going to come from county or states? But that uh, definitely brings up some good points. All right. Thank you for, that was your first stock down of the, of the sesh. That's right. Just because he wants to be opposite of me. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, this one is near and dear to our hearts. Uh, stock up, stock down masks in schools on campuses next fall. Mr. Krabs. I'm going to say stock down. Whoa. That, that's a, that's a, he's, that's a, Whoa. that's I'm a taking, major, he's stepping out. He's stepping I'm, out. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking nationwide uh, that more, more school districts will not have mask mandates than will have mask mandates. And that's why I say, Stock down. Stock down. Mm, yeah. That's a good point. I think they should, but I think that taken on the whole, there's going to be fewer schools with mandates. So I, I, I somewhat agree. That's a good point. Uh, I you got to give me your stock up, stock down. I would say stock up because I think there will be, as I said earlier, a variant or some, some other way that's going to push us to close schools or go hybrid or something like that. Um, I, I also think there are going to be a lot of students who will be – coming to school with masks, regardless of the uh, district's uh, expectation. There will be a sizable amount of students whose parents want them to or that they feel uh, they need to have a mask on school. My 17-year-old's getting vaccinated tomorrow. Wow. Well, well, well. All right, that was Stock Up, Stock Down. Thank you, fellas. Great job. Cue the music. Uh, Crable was the stock up optimist. He was the he was the bull market guy. Mr. Sids, you were a little bit you were a little bit down tonight. I was bearish. You're a little bearish. <laughs> the bubble's got to pop. All right. Uh, so, as always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Ed's Not Dead Media, a podcast media company that curates high quality audio stories across a variety of genres. One of our one of our tw- Twitter people will be uh, tweeting things about this show <laughs> at Ed's Not Dead PC. Um, check out the the website edsnotdead.com. And we're again excited to announce our partnership with Wise Education. We are going to be a press partner with Wise um, in some of their upcoming events, and uh, we're going to be talking more about learning ecosystems in the weeks and episodes ahead. Right, fellas. You got it. That's All right. right. All right. Any final words for our listeners? No, I'm just excited to get to the draft, really. Just watch the <laughs> I, draft. I know. I, I'm literally. Well, Casey, I, I'm going to come over. We'll eat some wings. I'm, I'm so excited. I, I got some wings. They're all flats. I'm so excited to see where Doug Flutie goes. You know, I think Crable, the funny thing about Crable is he says he doesn't watch it, 
but he's been on his phone multiple times during the show. He, yeah. he's, he's, he, he, yeah, you don't have not, to watch it. You look at watching. I know, but you like the draft, so you lie. Yeah, I like the, I like the information. Okay, yeah. there you go. But I so will you, not sit in front of the TV and watch it. I, no, I don't. I don't. Well, I will do that. Yeah. But I'm more of I'm more of a TV generation guy. Okay, I have I have something to leave you with. Okay. If do you want to know what seventeen year olds are watching? Do you have any interest in that? Yeah, obviously. Uh, okay. I, I, hold on. I was I was thinking if I could even have the slightest guess. Uh, uh, there is a sh- no. there is a there is a show right now that I'd put up there with Star Wars, Game of Thrones, the Marvel Universe. It is called Attack on Titan. Um, it's based on uh, it's it's now considered the most famous popular well-regarded anime show of all time. Wow. Um, it's in its fourth season. I'm three seasons in with my dear 17-year-old son. Uh, it is incredible. Really? It's, it's, it's based on a very popular Japanese manga um, called Attack by the same name, Attack on Titan. Do yourself a favor and watch episode one of Attack on Titan and you will be hooked. All right. Done. It is it is a fabulous show. I've never it, it will blow your mind. The story it's, it's Netflix? Um no, I think it's Hulu. Okay. Yep. Check it out. I think it's Hulu. I might misspeak. You know, I don't really Johnny does the play. Johnny it's, does, it's one of the just, <laughs> I don't really turn the TV on. You, you, you hit the button and it streams. My only, my only, my only role is I change the input. He does the PlayStation, <laughs> find the streaming service. Okay, I don't do that part. Hard. There's so I, many. I pay the bills. Darn it. I pay the bills. Anyway, Attack on Titan. Check it out. I All guarantee. Right. I guarantee you, there are listeners of our show that have adolescents that are watching Attack on Titan. I'm Googling it right you, now. You you will you will dig it. Um, all right, uh, to our listeners, thank you as always, uh, for Peter Casey. We always appreciate you tuning on to Ed's not dead. Make sure you spread the word about the show and, um, we will be back. Thanks again to Robert, uh, Pondicio. He was a great guest, right? Fellas. That's right. Senior fellow at the Fordham Institute and, um, for Casey and Peter, we'll talk to you soon. See you fellas. Bye. Bye.